Hi everyone, and today the uh, Bible reading is 1 Samuel 16, 1 to 13, and it's on page 202 if you have one of the uh, church Bibles. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. On the Queen's birthday uh, holiday, I went for a walk from Waterfall Gully up to Mount Lofty. And... Um, because it was a public holiday, there were a lot of people walking that day and, and jogging as well. And Kathy and I couldn't help noticing that everyone was wearing their kind of designer exercising gear with their hair done and their makeup done, where we were just in our daggy kind of track suits looking pretty, pretty bad, pretty ordinary. It was like there was some kind of dress code on Mount Lofty that I didn't know about because Anstey Hill doesn't seem to have a dress code. 
So we were kind of a little bit more attuned to appearances as we were walking and um, walking up the hill. And as I walked along, I came across the perfect man. Now, I know it's a little bit weird for me to say that. <laughs> but no joke, I found him. And I said to Kathy, did you see that good-looking guy that we just walked past? He was perfect. And she said she didn't notice him. Right answer. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure she was just pretending to make me feel better because you couldn't miss him. He was tall. He was handsome. He was athletic. He had strong leg muscles, but not freakishly so, if you know what I mean. <laughs> he was confident, bright eyes, white teeth. And I'm sure he was smart and could play an instrument well as well. It was a bit tricky to tell. He was like everything I ever wanted to be when I was a short, skinny teenager with a pop belly. And I only saw him for about five seconds as he walked past, but I knew it was long enough. He had it all. Now, I'm being silly, of course, and, and yet the truth is we do place a large weight on appearances, don't we? The pretty girl or, or the handsome bloke is the one who gets all the attention, even though how someone looks is probably the worst possible way that we could choose who would make a good partner. The person who presents well in the job interview, who looks good on paper and then performs well in person, gets the job, even though how someone goes in an interview pretty much tells you nothing about how they'll go on the job. The person who looks and, and sounds innocent on the news, well, they appear to us to be innocent, even though we don't know anything about who they are or what they've done. The politician who looks trustworthy gets the vote. Have you ever thought about how strange it is that, that posters uh, for elections never really have policies on them? They only ever have faces. Now, what has someone's face got to do with how well they'll run the country? Nothing as far as I can see. And I've got to say, some of those faces are at least a decade old as well. <laughs> we are so quick to judge things based on appearances. We can even make some of life's big decisions based on appearances. Sometimes we realise we're doing it. We don't realise we're doing it. But, but there are times when we might realise we're doing it. But the problem is, we also realise we're just not able to see how things beyond how things appear. We're just not able to see to the real heart of the matter in order to make it a good decision. Now, sometimes, of course, how things appear to us, they, they do line up with how things really are. But all too often, they don't. And this is a real problem for us. But it's not a problem for God. It's never a problem for God because he sees past how things appear. He sees through to how they really are. This is what we see in chapters 16 and 17 today in 1 Samuel. God doesn't see the way we see things. And so this means three things for us today. First, it means we make poor choices when we just base them on how things appear. Second, it means God never makes poor choices because he sees things as they really are. And so third, it means we make good choices when we base them on how God sees things. These are the three points that we're going to look at today. So let's look at the first point, how it comes out in the story. We make poor choices when we just base them on how things appear. 
The chapter starts with Samuel, God's prophet, mourning based on how things appear to him. Things appear a disaster. Over the years, Samuel's grown attached to Saul. But last week we saw that that God had rejected Saul because of his repeated and inexcusable disobedience. Everything looks a mess in this situation. Personally, for for Samuel and, and Saul, it's a tragedy Spiritually, it's terrible for everyone. And, and politically for Israel, this is, this is a mess worse than something like Brexit. And so the chapter starts in, in 1 Samuel 16 verse 1 with God saying to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. God isn't saying that Samuel shouldn't mourn, but he is implying that his mourning is becoming unhealthy. You get the feeling here that it's almost like Samuel, in his grief, looks at this terrible situation with Saul, and he thinks he can see clearly what should have happened. He's stuck mourning for Saul. Maybe because in his eyes, he thinks he can see how God should have done a better job. Now, we can be like that, can't we? Don't we sometimes think that we can see things more clearly than God? God, you should have healed that person. It doesn't make sense why you didn't. It isn't good enough that you didn't. Sometimes that's how things appear to us and we can get stuck in our grief. God, you should have intervened in that marriage. Why didn't you make a difference? Why didn't you soften hearts? Why did you let them down? Again, we get stuck thinking that our way of seeing things is better than his. God, you should have saved that person. I would have. I would have been merciful, so why weren't you? And again, we can get stuck in our grief. Maybe you're like that right now, stuck in your grief. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes that's because we think that we can see things more clearly than God. But we don't. God mourns over sickness and death more than we do. God's saddened by marriage breakdown more than us. And before we ever feel a pang of horror at the thought of, God, of people facing God's judgment, God is far, far more grieved than we'll ever be. We should mourn in a way that trusts that, <clears throat> that God is more merciful than we'll ever be. We should grieve in a way that looks to God for comfort for his plan and and his way forward out of the mess. Now, for Samuel, in his role as God's prophet, that meant he should have been looking to God for what's next. Now, you might remember twice already, Samuel has told Saul that God's given the kingship to another, but it seems Samuel's got stuck in his grief and he's not looking to God for what's next. He's not able to move forward. But God is so different. Things appear different to God. He's not taken by surprise. He's not stuck in the mess of this situation or paralyzed by grief. God has a plan. So God tells Samuel to go to Bethlehem because he's chosen one of Jesse's sons sons to be king. Now, God literally says here, I have seen among his sons a king for me. And God's way of seeing, it's not like our way of seeing. God sees what needs to happen and God sees to it that it does happen. 
God sees that the people need a king different to Saul. And so God now is seeing to it that they get this kind of king, his kind of king. Samuel, we read, is a bit scared to go and anoint this king, another king, because if Saul finds out, he'll kill him. And to get to Bethlehem, Samuel would have to travel through Saul's hometown. So God tells him to do it in a fairly secret way. And you get an idea of just how tense things are, because when Samuel turns up, the elders of the town are trembling. They've heard about the fallout between Samuel and Saul. And in this little country town, they don't want to get caught up in this conflict. They just want peace. So Samuel reassures them that he's come in peace, but he also makes sure that the sons of Jesse will be at the sacrifice. And then, when Jesse's oldest son arrives, Samuel looks at him and he thinks to himself in verse 6, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. And why does Samuel think that Eliab must be the Lord's choice? Well, it turns out it's almost entirely because of how Eliab appears. If it were up to him, it seems that Samuel would choose the next king of Israel based on appearances. Eliab is is strong, handsome and tall. And Samuel has a moment like I had up on Mount Lofty where he's stunned and he's impressed. This guy looks like a king should look. Samuel sees things the human way which is pretty crazy when you think about it. I mean, think about who else in the story of 1 Samuel looked like Eliab. Who else has been strong and tall? Who else has looked like a king should look? Saul, of course. How on earth can Samuel think that Saul take two would be a good choice? Now, on the one hand, I find this comforting, seeing that even the great prophet Samuel can make this kind of mistake. But on the other hand, it's disturbing, isn't it? If even Samuel can't seem to see past how things appear to make good choices, what hope do we have? The truth is, we make poor choices when we base them just on how things appear. And so just before we move on from this point, here are a couple of questions for you to reflect on. Maybe write them down for later if you have a pen. Is the appearance of something in your life or or someone in your life impacting your choices even now? Just take a moment and reflect on that. Is there someone who looks good or looks bad in your eyes? Is there a situation that looks particularly good or particularly bad? And then secondly, how do you stop yourself from making decisions based just on appearances? Samuel, although seeing things poorly, thankfully, he's a prophet who listens to God. He doesn't trust how things appear to him. He trusts God. And that's the key to making good choices, which we'll come back to in our last point. But before we do that, look at what God says to Samuel in verse 7. He says, don't consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God tells Samuel, he never makes poor choices because he sees things as they really are. God literally says, people look with the eyes, but the Lord looks with the heart. 
People look with the eyes, but the Lord looks with the heart. That's what it literally says. People look at what's in front of their eyes, but God looks at what's in front of his heart. And what does God's heart see? All things. Nothing's hidden from him. Humans, we can't go beyond what we see. But God can. Now, as it turns out, none of the brothers proved to be God's choice, which must have been a little bit confusing for Samuel. And so he asks if Jesse has any other sons, and he finds out that the, the youngest son hasn't even been considered important enough to get an invite. But when he finally turns up, God says to Samuel, rise and anoint him. This is the one. And so Samuel does with his older brothers watching on. And we read in verse 13, from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Now, we tend to read this story, not just us, all through Christian kind of history. We tend to read this story Like God looks at David and he's impressed. God sees David's heart and he thinks, wow, he's impressive. I need him on my team. We kind of read it as if God has a Mount Lofty moment with David. But reading it this way misses a big part of what's going on. See, God doesn't just see all things. The idea here is also that God sees to all things. God's way of seeing it, it's so different to our way because not only does God see to the heart of the matter, but he also sees things through to the end of the matter. He makes sure his choice is the good one because he commits his own heart to his choice. That's part of the idea. This is more about the place that David has in God's heart then it is about the place that God has in David's heart. See, God chooses David first, and because of that choice, God sees to it that David is the kind of king that his people need, the kind of king who'll trust and obey him. The point is, God sees not just what is right now, God also sees what he will make happen. God's not like us. He doesn't see only what stands before his eyes. He sees what stands before his heart and he brings about what his heart chooses. Which is a really comforting thought if you think about it. God brings about what his heart chooses. Now, for me, straight away, three questions kind of come up from all of this. First, if God doesn't look at appearances, why do we... (coughs) read in a couple of places about David's fine appearances. um, He's handsome or literally has pretty eyes, apparently. Well, the answer is that good looks are not the problem here. It's thinking that appearances matter more than they do that's the problem. They don't matter as much, anywhere near as much. That's the problem. The second question that comes to me, in my mind, in all of this is, If God sees things as they really are and doesn't make poor choices, why did he choose Saul? And you see the answer to this question over the whole book. The answer we've already seen at this point is that God chooses for them the kind of king they want. He hands them over to the consequences of their poor choice. God's good choice is sometimes to give us our poor choice. Now, that's not a comforting thought. That's a scary thought. 
We need to be careful what we love because God might well give it to us. And the third question is that, that comes to my mind. If God sees things as they really are and, and doesn't make poor choices, doesn't David make some pretty big mistakes later on? Doesn't he make a mess of things? Does that make him a poor choice in the end? Now, it's a good question to ask, but it's a question that's not so much wrestled with here, it's wrestled in Second Samuel. And so we need to leave it till we come back to that book, maybe next year. But already we can say that 1 Samuel is not so much about how amazing and impressive David is. This is a story about God. It's a story about his way of seeing things. It's a story about his way of seeing things right through to the end. And so, yeah, if we read ahead, we'll see that David makes mistakes. <clears throat> but he still remains God's choice. Because even though he makes mistakes, David can't undo God's ultimate plan A plan which starts with him, but ends with Jesus, the son of David. Now, no matter what it looks like to us, the truth is God never makes poor choices because he sees things the way they really are. And what this means for us is that we make good choices when we base them on how God sees things. We make good choices when we base them on how God sees things. This is what we see in chapter 17, um, which we didn't have read before, but which we kind of heard in the all-ages spot, the famous Bible story of David and Goliath. Now you've got the Philistines, I'll, I'll very briefly give you this story. You've got the Philistines lined up on one side of the ravine. You've got the Israelites on the other. And then for 40 days straight, twice a day, This Philistine warrior comes out and he scoffs at the Israelites. He's terrifying. He's about three meters tall, this guy. And there are two ways of seeing this situation. You can see it the human way or you can see it God's way. Saul and all the army, they see things the human way. Things appear hopeless and they're so terrified that when Goliath comes out and they see him or hear him, they run away. But David sees things very differently. He comes to drop off some food for his three older brothers and to see how they're going. And while he's there, he hears Goliath, but he's not afraid. He's indignant. He can't believe Goliath is defying God's people and God's people are doing nothing about it. Now, don't forget, he's just a teenager. But he's talking like he's going to do something about it himself if they're not. And when Saul hears about David... And his willingness to fight Goliath, he meets with him. But Saul's conclusion from that meeting is that David's got no chance. But it seems that Saul's so cowardly and so desperate that he lets David go for it nonetheless. You might remember David tries to put on Saul's armour, but it's too heavy. So in the end, he takes a staff and five stones and a sling. And that's it. It's ridiculous. It appears completely silly in human eyes and that's how Goliath sees it he's been terrifying God's people for 40 days and then a mere boy comes out to meet him and he's offended he says in verse 43 am I a dog that you come at me with sticks they obviously didn't have a RSPCA back then and the Philistine cursed David by his gods come here he said and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals now everyone sees this situation as, as hopeless 
silly even. Saul, David's brother, Eliab, Goliath. But David sees the situation completely differently. Look at what he says to Goliath in verse 45. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. Who talks like this? I mean, how can a teenager be so confident and so clear? How can he be so on about God's glory? Now, no doubt, the, the Spirit of God, who we, we read about before, who came on David, no doubt he was at work in David so that he could see things God's way. And then with just one stone, guided by God, David easily defeats Goliath. Now, you know when we read books um, that we tend to put ourselves in the hero's shoes? It's just what we do without even thinking about it. But you can't do that in the Bible. Who among us is like David? No one. Who sees things God's way with such clarity? None of us. Who has such perfect confidence in God like this? I've got to say no one I've ever met. We can't identify with David here. What makes him remarkable is how, how fully he trusts in God. Now this story, <clears throat> of course, it makes its way... <clears throat> into popular culture as, as the little guy taking on the big guy. But that kind of popular version of the story is always wrong because it's the little guy who wins in his own strength or his own cleverness or his own persistence or his own luck. But like Hannah prayed way back in, in 1 Samuel 2 verse 9, it's not by strength that one prevails. This is not about David's strength. David saw this clearly. This is about David trusting in God's strength. But in Christian culture, there's a different way that this story uh, is taken into our, our popular Christian culture. It takes on a different meaning. And it, comes, it becomes about us as the little ones fighting against the things that threaten us. <clears throat> and the moral is that, like David, we can bring them down in the Lord's strength. Have you ever kind of heard that idea? We can find our Goliaths, we're supposed to identify them, and we can destroy them, we can confront them. But do you feel anything like David? Can you honestly say that in the face of your great enemies in life, that you've seen things God's way right from the start? Can you honestly say that you've walked out fearlessly to confront your enemies for God's glory, armed with unshakable faith? I can't. It's hardly ever true that we're like David. We're far more like the cowering armies of Israel, paralyzed in fear, unable to face our true enemies, completely unable to see things God's way at all on our own. Hannah said in her prayer, it's not by strength that one prevails, way back at the beginning of Samuel. And she ends her prayer by saying, the Lord, he will give strength to his king. 
and exalt the horn of his anointed. God, he chooses to work through his king. And just like that, we need a king, a king of God's choice to save us from our enemies too. You know, the real Goliaths that we face in life, they're not really unemployment or sickness or a bad boss or poverty or self-image or loneliness. Our great enemy is death, is sin, is judgment. Our great enemy is unbelief in God, our inability to see things his way and the choices bad choices that we constantly make because of that. In the face of of death and sin, in the face of our own unfaithfulness, what can we do to bring these things down? Nothing. We're powerless. But we have one greater than David who steps up to the fight for us. We have one who sees things God's way right from the beginning to the end, even more than David, because he is himself God. We have one who defeats death and sin and judgment on our behalf. And as he dies on the cross, he might look weak. He might appear appear ridiculous, battling death by dying, destroying sin by becoming sin. But God sees him differently. God sees that this is the king he's chosen, fighting for his people, winning. God sees Jesus as the king we need. Look at how the Apostle Paul talks about Jesus, the king that we need in 1 Corinthians 15, 54. He writes, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, you do see all things. You see our hearts, Lord. You see our faith. You see our lack of faith. Father, you see the way that we cower before things that we should trust you in and leave to you. But Lord, we are so weak. We desperately need a king who will fight our battles for us. And we thank you so much that you have given us Jesus, a king unlike any other, a king who may not look in the eyes of the world like he can take down the things that confront us, but Lord, he is more than adequate. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus, and we pray that we will see things your way. We will see that Jesus is the Lord and Savior that we need, that he is the center of the universe, that all glory, honor, and power belong to him, and all glory, honor, and power will be given to him for all eternity. Father, help us to see our lives your way. Help us to see that it's all about Jesus. And Lord, we pray that we would Work for his glory in this life, knowing that our work for him will never be wasted. Lord, give us your Holy Spirit so that we can see the way that you see. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.